thankful for the gift of your son. He is Lord of the heavens. He's Lord of the earth. And the day will come when he's Lord under the earth. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have the privilege tonight to come without being forced to bow, bow our knee. We come because as an act of our faith, we have declared that Jesus is Lord over our lives and we declare that he's Lord over this church and he's Lord over this service tonight. And so we put our hands, we put our lives, we put this service into the hands of the Holy Spirit tonight that he would both accomplish his will tonight in our lives and through our lives. We ask you tonight, Lord, to give us understanding. We may hear things tonight we've heard many times over, but your truth has no end to it. And so we ask you to the, for those of us that have heard this truth before, that you would open the eyes of our understanding of our heart to see it and receive it as a, at a different level. And for those of us that may never quite have heard it before, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to grasp what the Spirit is saying to us tonight. We ask for clarity, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit and by your teaching, would you would help to separate out the thinking and the thoughts and the teachings that may have confused us and mixed things together, that you may bring clarity, that we may leave here with understanding. And for these things, we thank you by faith in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As I was preparing for tonight, I, I'm going to teach something that I've taught many times, and as I just prayed, those of you that have been here or have been part of this church and other churches have heard this many times, I'm sure. But I was brought home to me why teaching is so important, especially over basic things in the Bible, basic things of our understanding. Because our, 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 our wires in our brain can get crossed. Sometimes we get a lot of help with that because we've heard teachings or just general statements and we've really not sorted them out in the proper place. Um, my wife sometimes has come to me and my kids would come to me when they lived at home. With I remember one time we were sitting at church service in, in Tulsa on a Wednesday, Sunday night. And my daughter is very young and she's sitting in my lap and she'd been playing with her hairbrush. Remember that? And she got it, she had long hair. She got it all tangled in her hair. I mean tangled in her hair and she's trying to get it out by pulling it and I, I have a special gift from God it's the gift of untangling tangles <laughs> so sometimes my children would bring to me or my wife would bring to me shoelaces that are that are tangled up or or string that's tangled up and I, I, I've, I've it's a challenge to me to learn how to untangle them the first thing is it takes patience you can't get impatient and just start pulling at it because you'll tie it in a tighter knot. So you have to begin to be slowly look at where things are supposed to, where things 
go from one through one loop to another. And then gradually, whatever wiggle room you can begin to get, try to begin to move it until it slowly loosens up and it begins to untangle. Well, our minds are like that. Our minds are tangles of thoughts, impressions, ideas, doctrines, teachings, experiences, that in this amazing computer that God has built between our minds can get all tangled up. And then when we get frustrated, we get anxious, we, we start pulling at it to try to straighten it out. And we don't realize we're making the knot tighter. And if it gets tight enough, you may not realize there's a knot there. You may just think it's normal. But if you get too many knots in there, it actually shortens the string or the rope. By the way, I couldn't get my daughter's hair untangled. That was so tough, we had to cut the, the, the brush out of her hair. But that's one of my few failures. Teachings like that. What teaching gift will do is it will take confusing thoughts, things we've heard, and by going through God's word, begin to untangle the thoughts. And the purpose of that is so that we can gain understanding. Understanding is having ideas put in the right place so that that we can operate them in our lives and they can produce the results that God intended them to produce. Because if you get your electrical wires crossed or you get your you get your plumbing pipes crossed, you're going to get results you were not intended by the manufacturer. So we're going to look at what we've been talking about healing, and I want to break something down for us. So last week we looked at this idea. We looked at healing, and again, Pastor raised on a number of messages on where healing, where sickness comes from, whether it's the will of God and what is the will of God, and, and did a great job on that. And last week we looked at sort of a core concept, an understanding, and that's often been hotly debated, is, is physical healing included in what Christ did for us on the cross? Is it part of the atonement? And we've talked about the significance of that is if it's just something God does when he feels like it, if it's just something God does if you cry out enough, if it's just something God does and we don't never know for sure when God's going to do it, then here's the problem. We're going to see in order to receive from God, you have to believe it's God's will. But if you don't have a certainty of that where from the scriptures, where are you going to get it from? So we looked at what I, with all my heart, believe the scriptures teach us that healing of the physical body was included in what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's part of the price that he paid to deliver a spirit, soul, and body from the effects, the results, the fruit of the sin that was put into Satan's hands and by which he has ruled, which he's ruled the world today. But I want to break down, we ended by talking about this. So what we've established is that God has already healed us. He has already made provision for our healing. And we ended up by saying, therefore, to go to God and to plead with him to heal you or someone else really is unscriptural. Because you're asking God to do something he's already done. And what that very subtly does is it shifts the responsibility to God and off of ourselves, which is why it is so appealing. Because then if we don't see results, it's somehow it's God's fault, but it never reflects anything on me. But we're going to look at, at what the scriptures say to us tonight, because my opinion and your opinion 
don't amount to very much. So I'm going to give you a little legal lesson from first-year law school. In order for a gift, a legal gift, to be completed, two things has to happen. The person that's giving the gift has to have an intent to give it, and they have to somehow present that gift, whether it's electronic, however it is. But that gift is not a completed gift until the receiver accepts the gift. So there have to be two sides of the transaction. There has to be the giver who owns the gift who decides, I want to give it to you. But you have, the other side of that transaction is, you have to choose to receive that gift. And legally, it is not a completed gift unless that happens. You say, why would that ever be an issue legally? Because some people, in order, as part of their estate plan or for some other tax reasons, want to give something away so that they can either deduct it or get it out of their estate. And sometimes the IRS will fight you over it because if you can't prove that it was a completed gift, then they will not allow you to take credit for the gift. So this is an issue that has been litigated, which is where I've got some understanding of why those two elements are, are part of it. If you stop and think about it, any kind of transaction where you buy something, where you trade something, requires two sides. Someone has to initiate it and part with something, and the other party or parties have to receive what is given. Operating with God is the same way. If God doesn't move, nothing happens. Because God's part is to do things you and I cannot do. You and I cannot heal ourselves. We cannot heal anyone else. And doctors that I have talked to and I have heard speak that are, that are sincere will admit to you they can't heal anybody anyway. All they can use is the means available to them to help your body heal itself. But they're cooperating with the very healing the healing drive, the healing passion that your human body has to heal itself. And so there are two sides of any transaction. And so what we were talking about last week, where God has already done this, shows us God's side. And tonight we're going to look at our side, because there's a side that we have responsibility for. And if you don't understand the difference, what happens very often is we try to do God's side and convince him to do our side. And we can't do God's side, and he won't do our side, for reasons we may get into tonight. So, with that kind of background, let me give you some, some proof of that. The most famous verse in the Bible, probably, is John 3.16. What does that verse say? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. So God initiated, in fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, he in his own mind did this before the foundation of the earth. So God, because motivated by love, he gave his only begotten son. That's God's side. He gave his only begotten son because he loved the church. No. Because he loved the good people. No, there were no good people, good, not good enough. Because he, so he loved the world. That includes everybody that's alive today 
has ever lived or ever will live. So God's provision, his love, was for every human being that's ever lived. And for those human beings, every human being, he gave his only begotten son. And when it says he gave him, what it means by that, he gave him to pay for our sins, something we could not do for ourselves. God did for us. That's what grace is. Grace is God doing something for you, you cannot do for yourself, and you don't deserve. So that's God's side. But the verse doesn't end there. So that, that's the condition now, whoever believes in him should not perish. So God's intention, God's motive for giving his only begotten son to the world was that nobody would have to perish. That's talking about perish eternally. That's why he motivated to do. That's what he was motivated to do. And he did it for the whole world. But only whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So only those who would believe in him could receive the gift that he has given. So the very foundation of everything God's done The ultimate bottom passion of his heart is the same concept. God has already done his part. So when we cry out to God, would you please save my nasty brother-in-law? He's already done it from his side. There's nothing more he can do. He can help communicate what he's done, but there's no more he can do to save them other than sending his son to pay for their sins. Let's look at another verse that communicates the same thing. Mark eleven twenty four, very famous. This is, teaches us the principle of the prayer of faith. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. I didn't put it up there, but if we tied that with 1 John 5, 14, and 15, which says, if you ask anything according to God's will, he hears you. And if he hears you, you know you already have the request that you've made known to you. So God's already made up his mind that if you ask something that's in accordance with his will, as far as he's concerned, he'll give it to you. But Mark eleven twenty four says, but you've got to believe you received them when you asked him. So what is the condition? What is it that we need to do What is our part in completing this transaction? And our part, as you can tell by now, and you most likely already know, is we have to believe that God has given to us what we've asked. So that applies to healing. It applies to everything else God has provided for us. And so tonight we're going to look at why, and then we're going to look at how. So... What the Bible calls this, this is faith. There's a lot of teaching on faith. It's in our title of this church. But faith is what is needed. Listen carefully. This is the core of what we're going to talk about tonight. Faith is what is needed in order to receive something that God has already done. So last week we established, as far as healing is concerned, God's already done it because he did it on the cross over 2,000 years ago. And the reason we're not all walking in it makes clear is that we haven't 
received it. And in order to receive it, it requires faith. Because faith is what allows you to believe that God has already done something for you you can't see when he's given it to you and our physical senses can't see it. I'm going to go over that again because that's key here. Faith is what is needed in order to receive something God has already done when you cannot see what he's done given to, or given to us with our physical senses. So if I were to say to somebody, if I were to say to Patrick, I'm going to give you my Bible, and, and, and I have him come up here and I go to hand it to him, he has some confidence, now he's got to trust that I mean what I say, but he has some confidence that I have a Bible because he can see it. And he has some confidence that I want him to have it because I'm holding it out to him. In fact, if I went over and handled it and put him in his lap and walked away, that even gives him more confidence. But the confidence he would have is because he can see me, he can hear me, he can see my actions, he can try to read the demeanor on my face because I don't have a mask on. And, but from my external actions, he can draw some conclusion of whether or not, first of all, that I have one to give him, and secondly, that I intend to actually give it to him. And in the, his decision process of whether to receive it or not, he has to have confidence that I have it and that I mean to give it to him. And he can only interpret that because of what he can see or hear. But the problem is when God gives us something, we can't look at his face to see what his demeanor is. We can't hear words spoken to us unless something supernatural happens. We can't see him handing something. We can't see a big bank vault with your healing in that bank vault. We can't see it on that side of the curtain, which he talk about on Sunday. So how do we have the same assurance that it's really there and he's really given us when we can't see behind that curtain. And that's what faith is for. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. This Bible that he could see or touch has substance. And the fact that he could see it and then touch it before I let go of it and even feel whether I'm really going to release it or not gives him substance and that substance gives him confident enough, confidence enough to receive it. But when you can't see what God's handing you, when you can't see with your eyes what God's done, how do we have the same confidence that there's substance to that? Faith is the substitute for that substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As a lawyer, I understand what evidence is. Evidence is some tangible thing. Either it's physical evidence, like the knife, or it's oral evidence, like the testimony, or it's written evidence. But whatever form the evidence is in, it's something that you can see, feel, hear, or touch that points to the truth of something that you can't see. The jurors did not see whether or not Sam Smith spent, well, it's not a good example, whether or not uh, Johnny Jones shoved the dagger in the back of the victim. We weren't there, we can't see it. So evidence is what's given to the jury 
to point to something as true or not true that they could not actually see. So, back to Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence. It stands in for the evidence of things we could not see. I'll give an old example. I actually heard this from Fred Price. We go out to an archaeological dig, and they're looking for some evidence that there were dinosaurs there. And while they're digging, they find the thigh bone of a Baronosaurus. And they're trying to figure out something about this Baronosaurus. That bone, that fossil, is evidence that a Baronosaurus was at one point there. They don't see the Baronosaurus, but they, have, they believe it because the, the, the thigh bone gives them confidence that there was a Baronosaurus there at one point. But if while they're looking at it, the ground begins to shake, and they look up, and coming over the top of the hill is a Baronosaurus, they don't need the evidence anymore because they can now see the Baronosaurus. So faith is a substitute to give us the same confidence, the same assurance that physical evidence does for our natural understanding. So everybody with a name? So now, here's the, here's the issue. We're trying, to, our side is to receive something that God says he's already given us. But we can't see him hand it to us. We can't see that it's there. So in order to, in, but in order to receive it, we have to have confidence that, he's given, that it's there and he's given it to us. And so the only way we're going to have that confidence is faith. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Hebrews 11.6 For without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? For he who comes to God must believe two things. So in order to come to God, this is about prayer, any kind of interaction with God. In order to come to him, you have to believe two things. First of all, that he is. You say, well, I believe he is. Well, yes, but do you really? Do you believe he's really there in the midst of your trouble? Do you believe he's really there for you in the midst of a sickness? Do you believe he's really there for you when everything that you've been praying for looks like it's not happening or it's upside down? Do you really believe he's there? I had a situation lately when we were in a, in a situation that, that I had, something I had to face that I've had a fear over. And, and I knew I had, to, I had to face it and do it. And so I, I prayed. I cried out to God. I said, God, I want to overcome this fear. And I thanked him for it. I believe God heard me. And I got face to face with that fear, and it hadn't gone away. It was still there staring me back in the face. And I got upset. I got, I got very upset at God until God began to speak to me and say, Son, you know better than that. You know that in order to receive what I promised you, you're going to have to stand and believe it in spite of the contrary evidence. And then he began to show me, I'm trying to, you've asked me to break this fear at one level, 
I'm working to break it at its roots. So, I'm basically, I was questioning whether he was really there for me. So I know everybody in the room today, tonight, I'm sure everybody watching on, online, because you wouldn't be watching on a Wednesday night if you didn't believe that God exists. But just the fact that he exists in heaven is not what he's talking about. Is he, is he that real to you? And the second thing, does he respond to your prayers and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Now, the word diligently there is actually not in the Greek. It's part of the word seek, and it means persistent. It doesn't mean, it's not something you earn. It's you sincerely go after. So in this situation, I wasn't diligent. I was willing to give up after one shot at it until God corrected me about that. So here it is again. In order to receive from God, you've got to believe he is, you've got to believe he's there with you in it, and that he's a rewarder. He will reward you. He will respond to your request. And you must believe that. That word must in the Greek is the strongest possible. It's an absolute term. It means there is no other possible way unless you believe these two things. So, our side of the transaction is we have to believe that God's already given it to us before we can receive it. Let's look at uh, an example, Mark chapter 5. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's just so clear. Now, this is, this is a story in the middle of a story. The beginning of this story is where, where uh, a, 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 the religious leader... In, in the synagogue, has, has come to Jesus and fallen down and worshipped him. And he's cried out and says, my daughter is at the point of death. And Jesus said, I will come and heal her. Not I got to pray about it. Not I'm not so sure. I will come and heal her. He said, if you come, she will live. So they're all on their way. Again, I know most of you are familiar with the story, but let's get into the middle of it. So they're all on the way. There's this huge entourage about Jesus, and they're moving to Jairus' house. And we're going to pick up now. They're on their way, and I've got to imagine that to Jairus, there's urgency because his daughter is not very sick. She's dying. And it's not like today where you can get in your car and get out on I-95 and go 75, 85, 95 miles. Of course, I know you'd never do that because you're in urgency to get Jesus to your house. They had to walk. And while they're walking, this happens. A certain woman who had a flow of blood, issue of blood, she, for, for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians and had spent all that she has but was no better but rather grew worse. So she was at the end of her resources, at the end of her rope. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, stop there a second. There was some teaching among rabbis that the hem of a rabbi's garment had healing power in it. I don't know if that's what she's believing or not, but I've heard that taught before. She could, go back again, verse 27. When she heard about, she came behind him in the crowd and touched 
his garment. Some of the other versions say the hem of his garment. Now, there's a crowd. First thing, she is an unaccompanied woman. It is illegal for her to be out in a public assembly without being accompanied by a male. Second thing, she's in public bleeding. That was a violation of the law, and she could be stoned for that. So she was taking a tremendous risk to come up and find him and then to touch his garment. To do that, she's got to push her way through this crowd and reach out and touch it. And if some of the other versions are correct, she had to get down on the dirty ground and find his garment and touch it. Now, there's a lot of teachings we could do on that, but we're going to move on because that's not the point I have tonight. Verse 28. For she said, If I may just touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Notice her positive confession. Notice she's doing what Jesus said in Mark 11, 23. She's speaking what she believes. If I just touch his clothes, I shall be well. Verse 29. Immediately, the flow or fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Now notice the order here. The order is very important. Jesus is still focused on getting to Jairus' house. There's a commotion around him. He's hearing all kinds of voices and noise and, and around him. He's feeling people bumping up against him. He's got his disciples somewhere around him. And when this one hand touches his garment, and immediately something happens in her, she knows because she can feel that that flow of blood has stopped. Next verse. Jesus, immediately knowing that power has gone out of him. It's not that he heard her voice. It's not that he felt her tug on his robe. The first thing he feels is the anointing, the healing power of God that was already present in him. It now flows out of him, and he, that's what he felt. And he turned around, and he said, Who touched my clothing? At this point, he doesn't know who she is. So, for me, this answered once and for all whether it's God's will to heal. I remember sitting, while well, I was in Bible school, a faith school. And I'm sitting on a bus going to, to work one day after classes were over. And I said, God, I've got to have it out with you. I've heard the teachings, but I need to know from you, is it true that it's always your will to heal? If so, show me a scripture. And he took me to this immediately. I said, what is it, Lord? He said, if, if it's only my will to heal certain people, Jesus didn't even know who she was, and she's already healed. If it's only my will to hurt certain people, he would have to turn around and find out who she is and either pray or know by the Spirit, oh, yes, you're one of them. I'm sorry, you're not. Now, there were other people around him. There were other people touching him somehow. And it may well be, it had to be that some of them had some kind of ailments. 
How come they didn't get healed? Is it because it was only God's will to heal her? No, because he didn't even, Jesus didn't even know it was her. She's already healed. Then he turns, the first thing he knows is somebody touched me in faith. This touch was different from everybody else's. Who touched my clothes? Look at the disciples are thinking in natural human terms. But his disciples said, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And there's a lot of people touching you. And you ask, Who touched me? But see, this one was different. Look at the next verse. And looking around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing, why was she afraid? Because it was illegal for her to be there. And trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and, he to- and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, look at these words, Daughter, your faith has made you well. The healing was already here. It was already given when I'm walking through this crowd. But it's your faith that received it from me. The founder of the Bible school that we went to, Brother Hagen, most of you know the story, but when he was 15 years of age, he came down with three incurable diseases. One was a heart condition, one was, a, one was a, 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 some kind of leukemia because his body wasn't producing enough white blood cells. He said when they would take his blood, it was, wasn't red, it was a light pink. And then he had one other con- paralysis. So for over 18 months, he was paralyzed in bed, and he's, he's only that age. He figures all the, 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 the pastors are telling him he's got to die, telling him to get ready. And he was reading his Bible one day. Isn't it amazing? And it came to this verse, and the Lord spoke to him. He said, if her faith made her well, your faith can make you well. Your faith. Whether you exercise it or not is up to you. Let's look at another example. Let's go over and look at um, Luke 5.17. This is a powerful story here. It happened on a certain day that he was teaching, he's in a house, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting by, who had come out from every town in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So they're in this house, and the power of the Lord was present to heal. God had already provided healing in that room just as God had already provided healing in that crowd that the woman was walking in with the issue of blood. I'm not, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but the story is, this was religious leaders. But there was a man in the community who was paralyzed, and he had four friends, and they heard that Jesus was here in this house teaching, and so they carried their friend on a stretcher, but they couldn't get in the house because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof. Now that sounds horrible, but in many of those older houses, they would do things on the roof. They might plant things up there. So there were often steps that would go up the side of the house. So they bring him up the side of the house, and they get him up there, and it says, one of the, one of the versions of this says, they tore tiles off in the roof, and they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. 
And remember the beginning here says, before any of this happened, the power to heal was already present. Notice it doesn't say Jesus came to heal some people. It said the power, the, the part only God could do, was already there. In the end of the story, none of the people in that room received the healing. There may not have been any, but the chances are good there was somebody in there. But they lower this man down, and it says, Jesus seeing his faith. Now, it took faith for those four men to bring him and lower him down, but it took greater faith for him because they're not seeing the four guys. He's the one being lowered down in the middle of this crowd of religious leaders, and you can only imagine how angry... They were already angry at Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, "Man," says, seeing his faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And he could read the mind of these leaders. And they were thinking he's committing blasphemy. They may have even been talking among themselves. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk? So here he's tying healing and forgiveness together. But I say to you, in order that you know that the Son of Man, not the Son of God, has the authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and go home. And that man received the power that had already been present to heal them. So what we talked about last week is God's side. Here's God's side. He put healing in the midst of that crowd. Just as he put healing in Jesus when he walked on the earth, but only those who came to him and received it by faith received the healing. There's another verse at the end of Matthew 14, which is they, they came, people, a crowd came together to, to be healed, and they believed that if they just touched his garment, they would be healed. And then it says, but only as many as them that actually touched his garment were held. They had to act on what they believe. And where I really wanted to get to is in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, let's start at verse 12. Romans 4, Paul is, the whole purpose of the book of Romans is Paul is giving an, um, he's explaining um, uh, what the doctrine is of justification by faith alone. And now he's going to explain in chapter 4 what this faith is by which we receive, which we receive our redemption and our forgiveness in Christ. And he's using Abraham as an example. This is why Abraham is called the father of our faith. For the father of circumstances, circumcision to those not only who are of the circumcision, that's the Jews, but who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, he had while uncircumcised. So what he's about to explain are what he means by the steps of faith that Abraham walked in. So let's go down to verse, I think it's 16, the next verse. So here's gonna, this is, we're going to break this down. We're going to untangle here some confusion about faith and healing. Therefore, it is of faith so that it might be according to grace. Let's stop there. Grace is God's side. Grace is where God does something for us or enables us to do things we can't do. 
Grace is where God does his side. He gives us or provides something or does something for us that we don't deserve and we cannot do for ourselves. But it's of faith so that the grace may work. So it takes faith to receive the grace that does what God wants to do in us. Why? So that the promise may be certain to all the seed, that's all the seed of, 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 G, of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all, father of our faith. Verse 17. As it is written, this is out of, Hebrew, out of Genesis 17. This is God speaking to Abram. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, from my side of this transaction, it's done. I have done my side. I have made you a father of many nations. At this point when he makes this promise, Abraham now is, I think if I remember correctly, about 85 years old. When God first promises to him, he's 75. But in this conversation, which comes out of Genesis 17, Abraham, I think, is 10 years older. And, and the situation is this. Abraham is now 85, well past his procreative powers. Let's put it that way. And Sarah, who's 75, and also passed through the change of life. But even if she weren't, the Bible says she was always barren. When she was 20, she couldn't have children. So the three natural, physical realities that are standing in Abraham's face telling him, you don't even have one child yet, and he's talking about many nations coming from you. So there's the challenge. God's saying, as far as I'm concerned, from my side, I've not just made you a father of a child, I've made you a father of many nations. I have done that. In the presence or the sight of him who we believe. So in God's eyes, this is done. From God's side, it's done. Whom he believed, and this is what he believed about God. In whom he, God who gives life to the dead, calling what God's capable of doing. So God can take something that's dead and bring it alive. But it's even more than that. And who can call those things that do not exist into existence. Hebrews 11.3 gives us an example. By faith we understand, it takes faith to understand this, that the worlds were framed by the word of God. When God said, let there be, he called into existence out of nothing the universe. So the lesser of his power is he can take something dead like Lazarus and bring him alive. But the ultimate of his power is he creates things out of nothing with his words. That's going to become important to us. Verse 18. Now, this is how he did it. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, he believed. So what that's saying is, everything that he knew 
from all his 85 years of existence and experience, everything he ever heard, everything he saw, not only in his own body and his wife, but every person he'd ever met, told him there was no hope that you're ever going to be a father. So there was no natural reason to hope. But he chose to hope against the fat reason for no hope. And the, under, the word hope in the New Testament is a Greek word. It's not like we, when we talk about hoping something, we really mean we're wishing it would happen. But the word hope here means a confident, positive expectation. When hope against hope, look at this, he believed so that he might become. So we've seen here again it is, God has said as far as I'm concerned on my side, I've done it. Abraham has to struggle with the fact that there's no natural reason to have hope, but he's chosen to have hope anyway because the God who's made the promise can raise the dead and can call things into existence that never existed. So what has he got to do? He's got to believe so that he might become what God promised. So God's promised it. God's given it. He's handed the Bible to Patrick, but he's got to believe it so that he might receive what God's already done. According to that was spoken, God's word, so shall your descendants be. Now here's what he did. Verse 19 who, not being weak in faith, or without becoming weak in faith, he considered not his own body. I want to break that down for you, because some of you may have slightly different transactions, no, translations. Again, the physical evidence they had, their age and her barren womb, told them this was not possible. But he chose to consider not that evidence. The word consider is a Greek word that means to fix your eyes or your attention on or to stare at something. Now, there are some translations like the New American Standard that doesn't have the word not in there. In fact, some commentaries say that the older, better translations don't have the word, so they read, he considered his own body. What the word, what it means was, it means whether he did, he went face to face with it and it didn't move him. He was not moved off of what he believed by the physical evidence that he saw. Now keep in mind, this was not some evidence he saw once a month, once a year. This was evidence he saw every day. Every time he looked at himself in the mirror. Every time, every time he would take his clothes off and look at how wrinkled his body was. Every time he'd look at his wife. It was physical evidence screaming at him, This is never going to happen. And he had to choose what he was going to do with that physical evidence. And he chose to not let it move what he chose to believe. And that was an act of his will. To consider not his own body, already dead, physically, sexually, procreatively, dead to producing a child. Since he was then about a hundred years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. Next verse. 
He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Let's stop there a second. Uh, This is so good. If you actually go back and read the account in Genesis, he wavered all over the place. At one point, he laughs when God promises him this. Sarah laughs. She goes and hides in her tent and laughs, and God hears her. At one point, Abraham tries to sell his wife off as his sister to marry her off to Abimelech to save his own skin. So Abraham did not immediately walk in this kind of faith. He had to grow in it. But isn't this wonderful? Because God's testimony of Abraham at the end of his life, at the end of his faith journey, was where he ended up, not what he went through to get there. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. It's not over till my last breath. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Why? Look at verse 21. Being fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to perform. Why? I was meditating on that one day, and suddenly it struck me. The obstacle to Abraham's belief was what? Three things. His age. He was too old to have children, to produce children. His wife was too old to produce children. His wife, even when she was young, was barren. All three of those things tell you that from every possible natural standpoint, it is impossible. So why would he be strong in faith? Because it goes back to an earlier verse. Because who is this God he believes? He can raise the dead. And he can call things into existence that don't exist. Suddenly I saw it. If you've got somebody that's promised you to do something, and they can raise the dead, and they can call something into existence that never existed before, what in the world can my shriveled up body, how can that stop God from fulfilling the promise that he made? But how do you do that? How does that come about? Do I just have to get such overwhelming faith that I just feel strong? No. Let's see where the battle is. Let's see where it comes from. Let's go to Numbers 21. This is one of several stories like this, but this is the clearest one. Here's a case where the children of Israel, we're back in there, this is their journey. They're in the wilderness. They haven't made the promised land yet, and this is the first generation. And they're, they're, when things, the minute things go, don't go the way they want them to go, they do what so many of us do, they start complaining. I had to repent of this this morning. I was, found myself complaining, and on my way in here, I had to repent. God, forgive me, I have, no right to, I have no right to complain of anything. And I just start going through all the reasons I need to have to praise him and be thankful for him. And it turned my day around. But they, they didn't do that. They stopped complaining, and they were accusing God of not being faithful to them when he should have wiped them out in the very beginning. So what happens is their sin manifests as snakes, serpents. These are poisonous snakes. I've heard one teacher say that that God promises protection. But what happened is when they kept complaining and complaining and complaining, they brought that protection down because they opened the door to Satan to come in to their camp. And he came in in the form of fiery serpents. 
So they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged. Be careful of discouragement. If you don't deal with discouragement, it will end up in self-pity, which will end up opening spiritual doors to the enemy, and that's what happened here. Next verse. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Well, apparently there was food because they're complaining that the food was worthless, but when you're complaining, you don't think straight. Verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and, the, and many of the people died. So these are poisonous snakes. Keep going. Therefore the people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned. <laughs> you think so? And we've spoken against God and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So look at this. So Moses prayed to the people. This is a great example of leadership. Moses, to me, next to Jesus, is my hero in the Bible. And Paul's up there. But Moses was a leader over probably two million people. They were over and over complaining to him. They would complain to him. He would go to God, and God wouldn't let them off, him off the hook. So he was caught in the middle. And he was, they were constantly giving trouble. They're blaming him for the lack of food. He didn't cause this. He's just obeying God. He's obeying God, and they're blaming him for their trouble, which they bring on themselves. So they're saying, pray to God that he would take away the serpents. And I would sure, like most people would say, Moses would, if they were Moses, would say, you deserve these. You need to deal with them yourself. I'm not praying for you. But Moses was a humble man of God who loved the people and loved God. So he prayed for the people. And look at God's answer. Verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. This means a bronze serpent that would, that would be shiny. And set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Isn't that an interesting answer? Notice God didn't say, okay, I forgive you, I'm going to take, I'm going to take this, this serpents away. But he has him build this strange thing, a pole with a serpent around the pole, a bronze serpent. You want to understand what that means, you need to understand several things. Uh, materials, metals in the Bible, in the Old Testament, have a significance. And bronze, one of the significance of bronze is it tends to represent sin that's been judged. So here you have their sin hanging on a pole, judged. Now, the real meaning of this comes across in John chapter 3, I think it's around verse 14, where Jesus points to this and said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus himself says that this, that God tells him to do, is a type of the cross. But notice what's happening. God's not saying, because I'm going to put that serpent on the cross, on the pole, that's going to get rid of the snakes. What he says is, if you get bitten by a poisonous snake, and you look, and the word look here in the Hebrew means the same as consider did in Romans 4. If it is a steadfast, determined, unmoved look at that serpent on that, on that pole, you will live. That poison will not kill you. 
So it's a one thing for us to be in, the, in here tonight or in the comfort of your home or wherever you're watching us online and think of this story, but let's imagine right now that I asked Pastor Michael to go into my office and bring out these two bags of rattlesnakes and we're just going to release them. Just let them go down the aisle, slither down the aisle. Would you continue to sit in your seat and listen to the word of God being spoken here? Would it distract you if there were, if there were copperheads and rattlesnakes slithering up and down the aisles and, and going past your, your feet and then one bites you and you can begin to feel the venom moving up your bloodstream. And God said in the midst of all those snakes and that bite, you're not to look at the snake. You're not to look at the bite. And the worst thing you do is run around. But you're to keep your eyes on that pole. And if you do that, you'll live. That's crazy. But that's what God said the answer is. And Abraham considered not the physical evidence that told him that God's promise could never happen. And this was over a period of 25 years. And it wasn't because God delayed, it was Abraham, it took Abraham 25 years to get his faith in the place where he was not going to move. So when physical conditions show up in your body, pain, symptoms, you get a doctor's report that's not what you wanted. You have a choice. What are you going to consider and what are you going to consider not? God's telling these people, I don't care whether you've been bitten or not. If you want to live, you can't look at the bite. If you want to live, you can't pay attention to the pain. If you want to live, you can't, you've got to not, not be moved by the fact that you can feel that paralysis starting to go up your leg. You've got to make sure you look at the solution and the answer because that's what I have provided for you. And those that did it lived. So our side of this is we have to learn to not depend on our five senses when it comes to the promises that God has made and to not be moved by what our five senses tell us. And that's going to happen as you begin to practice this, begin to put it into practice and meditate on God's word. Let's pray. Father, only you know where the people that are in the sound of my voice tonight, only you know what they're facing right now. We know this much, that whatever it is, you've made a promise. And that promise is already done in your heart and in your mind. You've already moved. And the only condition you have for us to be able to receive it is we have to believe you and believe that you have done this and believe that you are able. And Lord, in many of our minds and, and hearts and, and understanding, we just it's, this has all been one confused thing to us. 
And as we prayed at the beginning, we were asking you to begin to give clarity, not just to doctrines, but to our life and to the circumstances of our life and to our relationship with you and the things that we may have been trusting you for and asking you for and looking to you for. We know that wherever there's, wherever there's a, a failure, it's never on your end. So where something's not working or something hasn't worked, open our eyes, help us to see and to understand, not to fall into a legalism, because this is not to earn anything from you, it's to help us receive something that we can't see that you've already given us. So my prayer tonight, Father, is that we've attempted to bring understanding that you would now, as we prepare to leave here, show us how to apply this in the issues of our life, in the issues of our family, in the issues of our community, in the issues of this church, in the issues of our, of our nation. We thank you that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it under the day of Christ. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. I want to, I've gotten two prayer requests. We're going to change how our prayer requests are being handled now. We have a prayer team that meets on Sunday morning before the service. And if you submit a prayer request online, which we'd love to have you do, it's going to go to them. And these are people that really know, know how to pray because sometimes we get doing other things in here and it may slip my mind, but it will not theirs, and they'll continue to pray over it. But these are the last ones that, that we've gotten in, and I want to just have you agree with me. This is uh, praying for the salvation of a grandson, Jordan, uh, who is currently incarcerated, and some other grandchildren. And so, Father, we come into agreement with our sister Lois, and we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of her grandson. Lord, if he, he is in a place now where he's lost his freedom for whatever reason. But you can come into the walls of that prison and you can come in through the voice and messages of other people for your gospel is in every prison. And Father, we ask you to bring someone across his path to speak just the right words at just the right time. Satan, we come against you because you're the one, the Bible says, blinds the eyes of the unbelieving that they don't see the glory of the gospel of Christ that's in the faith, the glory of God that's in the faith of Christ. And we've been given authority over him. And so Satan, we command you to take your hands off of this young man's life. We break your power over and over the rest of these grandchildren in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for Melissa, who had surgery on June 22nd to, return, to re remove a cancer. Father, we just pray that that cancer is gone. It can never come back. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke cancer in her body and declare that it cannot prosper in the name of Jesus. And we come together and pray, Father, for a complete and a total recovery. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Two more things I want to do before we, we dismiss. I know, I think I know everybody here. I can't see you exactly, but I'm pretty sure.